1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Podrick Reedy. This week, Max Porter returns to Little Atoms with his new book, Lanny. Max Porter is the author of Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which has been translated into 20 languages worldwide and been made into a stage play starring Cillian Murphy. His latest book is Lanny, a story of a young boy, an elderly artist and a mysterious spirit. This episode of Little Atoms was recorded at the offices of Faber and Faber in Bloomsbury, so it may sound a little different. Oh, and if you're wondering about the song Max mentions near the end of the show, it was So Everyone by Bonnie Prince Billy from the album Lie Down in the Light. Thanks for joining us, Max Porter. Uh, since you last appeared on Little Atom's uh, Grief, which was November 2015, I think. Um, grief is the Thing with Feathers, which we talked about then, has become you know, what we could reasonably describe as a, a literary sensation. I think I think the, um, the blurb for this book said, 29 territories, 20 different languages translated. You've got the theatre adaptations opening in the Barbican next month. Um, but now we're here to talk about Lani. Um, would it be fair to call this book a follow up? Uh, yeah. You mean does it relate to
2: the first one in yeah. in my mind? Um, um, I know it does in their mind, <laughs> it does in the publishers, yeah. Um, yeah, I think so because I didn't I didn't think I would want to write another novel and I decided suddenly with some energy a year or two ago that I and it, it, it deepens some of the concerns in grief. I thought it was much longer, much longer, much bigger. And my wife when she first read it went, Oh it's It's definitely by the same person, isn't it? (laughs) And then obviously on paper, Mm -hmm. it's written in small sections of sort of prose, sort of poetry. It contains a mythical kind of centrifugal character um, who may or may not be real, who could be a metaphor. It's about loss. So yeah, it would seem to be an extension of the book's core themes. But in my mind, it's completely separate because I sat down and wrote this and made it up. And, and was aware that I was writing a novel and that people would read the novel when I was finished. Whereas the first book came out of my life and was private, and was pieced together as we, you know, as I discussed with Neil, in a uh, questing way, you know, to sort of try and solve a formal and personal problem yep. of how to write about that subject and childhood well. Whereas this was like blank piece of paper, get and write a book. Yeah. I have a friendship between an old man and a boy and I'm off,
1: you know, page mm. one, go. So in my mind, they're completely separate projects, Yeah. but I'm aware that there's some continuation. Here. And there was never any, you know, like, you weren't planning ahead midway through the first book. <laughs> what, the ne- what the next book would be. No, God,
2: long. no. No, I didn't even really, no. That, that, those early days, about, around about when I came and spoke to Little Atoms, you know, I was still thinking the book would sell a couple of thousand copies really and be one of those curious things, those kind of strange little books that sit on your shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very it's very different, but that book was a bird, you know, and, and, and I was able to let it fly away and that felt good into different languages and into different contexts, particularly the different way in which the literary homage is understood in different reading mm-hmm. cultures. And I ha- there's a powerlessness there, I cannot, I don't speak Greek, I cannot help my Greek translator get to that, yep. the nuances of that thing about Hughes and, and fiddling around with our literary heritage, and, and so I, I have to just let go of it and not think about it, whereas with Lanny I, I'm holding it much closer. Uh, the novelising of, of things and the, and the taking seriously the, the art of writing a novel this time was much more in the forefront of my mind as a, as a problem to be solved.
0: You
2: know? mm-hmm.
1: so, yeah. so tell us about Lanny, the, the title character. Well, he's
2: the one I didn't write really. He doesn't exist in the book in as much as he's only ever really existing in, in, in other people's consideration or of him or love for him or bafflement at his peculiar personality. So he's a kind of absence really in the same way as the mum might have been an absence in my first book. He's not aged. I have a sense of how old he is, but it's not important. Mm-hmm. You know very little about him. Except that he is this enchanting presence and almost unnervingly precocious, eccentric, interesting kid. But also that he isn't—that he's also got—he's managed to grasp adult conversation in a way that is, to his parents at least, quite startling. And uh, he, he lives in this village, and um, he has—he starts art lessons with the old local artist. Mm. That's how
1: it begins. We learn about Lanny through other people's perceptions, and I think it, it is something that you know that does echo. I think with, with, with people who have read Reef Through and Feathers*, there's there's a concern with the, the strangeness of childhood, and, and I think specifically of, of boyhood that rings through. But we never we never hear from Lanny himself, as you say. But yeah. we have a range of perceptions from his parents, from Pete, who's the uh, the artist you mentioned, and from the village as a whole. He is this he has this presence in this village. You know, beyond obviously above and beyond any other child, even adult, really. Maybe he's, he's a very physical, real kind of feeling for everyone there.
2: Or at least he appears to have been yeah. in retrospect. When mm. when this when when this thing occurs, <clears throat> suddenly everyone's aware of. It. What I hoped would be that Lanny is, seems that way to us as the reader because we're in his parents. Yep. We're in the domestic the intimacy of their domestic environment. So your kid always seems like the one with the issues or the one with the special skills or the one that's behaving mm-hmm. really badly at a party. But everyone has a Lanny, you know, everyone's, everyone's child is Lanny. So I wanted him simultaneously to be a highly distinctive character and recognisable in certain ways, but also almost just like a two-dimensional stand-in for Childhood, mm-hmm. like be it the kind of Victorian uh, origin of the child as innocent or the kind of Operation New Tree era notion of the child as potential site of, of trauma or abuse or, or the kind of child as proto adult, the kind of psychoanalytical model of the child as, mm-hmm. as, as miniature adult, able to play with adult themes in a way that adults can't. So I want all of that loaded onto him. Yeah. But as you say, you never you never see him, so you're doing all that work for yourself. Mm-hmm. He's just a sort of a gap. You hear him talk a little bit, and I hope that when you hear him talk, you're not like a <laughs> big child acting. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, other people's kids are just awful, aren't they? Yeah. Oh God, so annoying. I hope he's generally quite a, a, a sort of, um, I mean, I certainly in terms of the composition of the whole thing, I hope he's inoffensive, mm-hmm. that your eye is drawn everywhere in a thing but him. Yeah. Certainly I, as, a, as, a, as the writer of it, <clears throat> All the other characters i know intimately uh lanny i, I didn't need to because mm. i'm building him mm-hmm. elsewhere so yeah in terms of the like she can tell you exactly this you know the the, the play of light on the little sort of bum fluffy hair on his cheek or everything like that because that's the level of attention she pays him as a mother yeah i didn't pay him that kind of attention mm-hmm. i didn't need to whereas the dad i mean robert particularly was was built from the ground up and i can tell you every tiny detail of his, of his routine and his tastes and his his physical relationship with the world around him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, Lanny is the sort of experiment in that respect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned Robert and, and uh, Jolie, or Jolie? Jolie? Jolie, I say Jolie, yeah. like Jolie Holland, the folk singer. Mm-hmm. So Robert and Jolie are the parents. And I think <clears throat> a lot of, um, again, a, a big theme this book is what you mentioned Dan, about the, the, the fears and obsessions i think of, of parenthood like whether my child is particularly special whether my child is behind or ahead whether my child is whether if my child being special will make life easier or harder for them yeah. and the fear that is inherent in parenthood is, is a huge part of this i think fear full stop
2: uh, it's it's a book about fear mm-hmm. fear of others fear of ourselves fear of those closest to us fear of the unknown fear of the past fear of, fear of Europeans coming for our our jobs I think that that particularly for Robert, I'm trying to write with him a kind of everyman but a specifically 21st century wage slave everyman in as much, you know, sort of an iPhone owning, wireless headphone wearing, you know, nice trainers but defined basically by the fact that he doesn't feel like he's a good enough dad or a good enough husband on the sort of stage set of his home life and nor does he feel like he's ever at work enough to be good at work he's 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 defined by his commuter status basically Mm -hmm. um and therefore what lanny represents to him is is a sort of almost like a a sort of christian vision that you can't look at because it's too bright of of sort of befuddlement and therefore attack on his own sensibilities he feels next to lanny out of control uncultured because the kid is asking all these phenomenally interesting questions and is friends with the artist and is helping his wife write her book and is asking like sort of odd green man style folkloric Staff and Robert's like, I have nothing to, to do with this, this yeah. is not from me, I can't be controlling this. And in that I am basically trying to get at the kind of psychic unease of parenting in general.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They're quite specific things, but all parents experience them in one way or other anyway, just that kind of like, the fuck am I supposed to do? I mean, he says on page two, what am I supposed to make of this? What am I supposed to do? And how, how can anyone have children and not go completely mad? Mm-hmm. And in that, lots of people finish the book and think Robert's a sort of villain or has failed. And obviously, in, in some aspects, he, he literally fails in the book. But he's the character I, I have put most love into in as much mm-hmm. as I really feel for him. And, I, and I'm tender towards those failings that we all feel. And then particularly a certain type of emasculated, frustrated, late, late capitalist goon, really, as many of yeah. us are now um without any kind of spiritual depth to him because he hasn't got the courage to discover what he's spiritual about he he, he doesn't have any other hobbies because he's busy um and this kid is it represents a kind of a judgment mm-hmm. um, and i think often your children represent a judgment because because you sort of there's a sort of better you all the time fighting with yourself and yeah so that's him yeah.
1: there's a there's a great passage where robert you know, kind of minutely describes the the perfect commuting time yeah, <laughs> almost like the one thing he yeah. has con- he can control.
2: And and yeah. tragically, you know, his best friend really is the car that he mm-hmm. uh, he he gets to spend this sort of 20 minutes with each morning and each evening. Um, but then also what I wanted to, for him was to, to sort of see suddenly that there is an opportunity to be liked. This fixation on being liked and and on a sort of respectability. There was a bit that didn't end up in the book, but it's like respected at work, respected at home, you know, respected in the pub, you know, like the British class system is so difficult. But if I can somehow float free of it and be like, liked by the guy who opens the door for me, liked by the window cleaner, liked by the farmer, and also possibly even loved and possibly even sexually desired by my wife then that's like a ding 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 ding. I'm working as a man and all those things are futile and all, all those things become harder the harder you try at them mm-hmm. so I want him to be sort of locked into this eternal yeah. kind of metrosexual failure to be the kind of guy he thinks he should be and that is fairly universal I think but I wanted to make it quite English mm-hmm. and it's been quite fun for me like members of my family over have written to me gone. is it uh, <laughs> you know how do you think X will feel about that because he commutes it's like it's all of you it's all of you. Mm. No, there is, I don't know a Robert, I know loads all of Roberts. Robert. We're all Robert.
1: <laughs> mm. So Robert um, and Jolie and Lani um, are, in yeah, the sense we get, they're, they're blow-ins in, in a country village within commuting distance yeah. of Robert's job. Jolie is, uh, she's a, a middling actress now, yeah. now writing a, a crime thriller, yeah. uh, particularly brutal by all accounts that we hear of it, a yeah. crime thriller. And they're in they're in this nether world of, of it's a commuting distance village from London, but it's still very definitely a village, and it's still, as you mentioned, it's a very English setting. Well, yeah, it,
2: it, it's nice. People are telling me that it reminds me of their village here and there, and you know, in the southwest or up north. But it, it's it can't really. It is very specifically home counties. Yeah, because these were places that were. Uh, Rural, you know, defined by agriculture and by rural industry, you know, whatever it is, thatching or flinting or red brick or... And now are are primarily defined by their proximity to London um, and and the effect that that has on house prices and everything like that. But yeah, I wanted it to be a sort of every village. And I never wanted to be too specific about it because I wanted it to be slightly a dream space. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. But it feels that there is essentially at the heart of the book there is a clash between the metropolitan liberal elite represented yeah. by Jolie and Robert, and I think probably Jolie in particular seems to be more engaged with the village and yeah. the fact that she's a writer makes her yeah. odd. Um, and the the salt of the earth village people and the, the earth itself I guess. Yeah. You know, that's obviously something that, you know, it's a theme, it's been a theme of the world of Britain for the past few years, anyway. and is that something that you were very consciously tapping into? I, th- I thought it's a well-established enough theme, a
2: bit like cliches of grief in the first book, it's well-established enough that you don't need to do it again. It's a bit like English myth and folk. I don't need to be jimmying out the, the Jack of the Woods yeah. myths that readers are accomplished enough to know what those myths are and we can move can move into a kind of post-myth environment. So same with the English village. I didn't need to spell out that antagonism too much. What I wanted to do is have that understood and then go straight into the sort of hot bits of it. So, for example, the most explicit moment would be the fight between Mrs. Larton and Jolie, mm-hmm. each of whom represent to the other the threat to the, their world order, effectively. She's yeah. a sort of Daily Mail reading English sort of hyacinth bouquet type character and represents to Jolie everything that is wrong with that post, with the baby boomer generation of sort of self-satisfied, lapsed, Christian, judgmental, Daily Mail reading, probably Europhobic, etc. And Jolie represents this sort of uh, careless, metropolitan, liberal, gadget-obsessed, you know, always looking at her phone. She sees it as a kind of architectural vulgarity, I think, and vice versa it's staged aesthetically isn't it in a place like a village Mm -hmm. you know look what she's done with her greenhouse look what she's done with that ridiculous open plan kitchen you know look what she's done with the paving stones look what she's done with her her hyacinths. whatever and I think that that's particularly English because snobbery is so versatile in the in in the UK Mm -hmm. in, in the kind of environment fostered by the very poisonous UK class system which is you have this kind of snobbery which can wriggle into everybody's lives um, and inverse snobbery and therefore there's a kind of subtle but sometimes quite loving, quite affectionate, sort of like a a sort of constant, quite baroque carnival of of aggressive snobbery all the time in a place. Mm -hmm. That's what you talk about. Have you seen X's new, this, have you seen, did you hear that, well, you know. And I wanted to tune into that but not in a way that just rehashed those antagonisms but actually went past them to the point where when something traumatic occurs how do we how do those things arm us mm-hmm. against one another how is kind of baffled casual acquaintance turned into kind of toxic camaraderie or you know i want to see what happens to that ecosystem when when a drama, a bomb is dropped in it
1: and i think that's something interesting that when as the trauma sort of builds in the village we we get more perspectives rather than fewer. Yeah. In terms are constantly, there's paragraph after paragraph of different perspectives, and some just random voices all feeding off into each other. Yeah. And this is something, yeah. That that, as I say, the ecosystem rather than a, a very personal tale. I wanted it like the top of the theatre being lifted off, and
2: and you know several other plays being sort of parachuted in, but that they are all the same actors. We are all <laughs> the same. There's only a few of us, you mm. know, and we're all sort of wearing masks. So. It would be perfectly credible that we could change faces, mm-hmm. you know, and, and perform each other's anxiety. Like that's how familiar we are in England with each other's psychopathologies or biases or you yeah. know, or, or, or tics even or, or senses of humour even. Like we can even joke as each other, and so I, that's why there's no character names, and that's why you get these funny breaths because I wanted it to chop along. Obviously, the propulsion is that you want to know what's happened to the kid, but I wanted the energy to come from the kind of. Shuffled deck of of Mm recognizable hot points because i don't think novel needs the whole kind of max walked into the room and took off his barber jacket and stretched his back because he was tired and it had been a long day in the hills and he said as he sat down with his tea sally i saw robert in the car park and he was hugging i don't think you need any of that i think you only need the line that says i saw rob in the car park and he was hugging pete that's it mm-hmm. because then you've you've shed all the kind of mannerisms of the descriptive register and just gone straight to the thing that's interesting if it's then juxtaposed with the casual racism in the pub or the kind of hostility to journalism that exists you know yeah that's, that's what it's about for me is that the, the energy
1: and that energy is i think we start the book with with the stirring of of dead puppet tooth which It's this well, you can tell this one is, but it seems to feed off the energy. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but this entity, this uh, wood sprite, seems far too simplistic, whether he's some kind of subconscious thing. But, but it, he's something that feeds off countless snippets of it. It reminded me of um, there used to be um, a guy who made techno records called Scanner. Yeah. And he's. This is probably highly illegal, but he used to, in live performances just get a police scanner and just tune into mobile phone yeah. conversations, yeah, and just just constantly scanning and picking yeah. up like tiny snippets of conversation and dropping in that. Yeah. And that's kind of what what it seems to be. I and mean, you don't even know with that from, is yeah. literally my kind of rave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But this is what, exactly what's happening with Dead Papa Tooth. So yes. to he emerges as this, and you don't know whether these yeah. things are things that he's feeding from. I'm going <laughs> to write
2: that down, dear, dear listener. I'm just writing this Canada.
1: Are these things he's feeding from? Are these things he's taking yeah. life from? But but they are, they're five-word snippets just strung together, and again, beautifully typeset, um, giving this sense of, of a fluid creature that just lives off these words. That's nice to, to suggest he lives off them that suggests he's feeding
2: on it, which I, which is right. I mean, the point is that the typesetting is not just to look pretty, but it's to suggest that it is sound, not text, mm-hmm. uh, and that it is not bound by the printed conventions of the, of the book. As we wondered how to do it, you know, for example, when I do it live, I want them coming from different speakers. I, don't, I, can't, I can't say them myself. No. Um, and there were various rules I had about not punctuating them and them not being poetic and all this sort of stuff. Basically, you're right. He is... He is a voyeur who has been watching this place since it has been a place. So he sees panoramically and listens panoramically. So it's moved so fast and he's so patient that a Victorian slang just seems like yesterday. And because he's a kind of, he's a sort of language fetishist, he's a sort of pervert, really, for the the everyday banalities of how we communicate. He's kind of sorting through it I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to use sexual metaphors because it isn't really sexual for him. Um, it is more like sustenance. So he's sort of, he's sort of feeding on the sounds of the place, looking for the thing that he finds most delicious. Closure. Which, given his experience of the place, he's seen plagues, he's seen revolutions, he's seen, how he's witnessed enclosure and all the sort of significant events. But the thing that he loves, in the same way as the crow in my first book loves grieving humans, because they're more interesting than normal. <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's the point. That's the point. Anyway, um, he's looking for childhood. He's looking for this precise moment when an interesting slash eccentric child starts to kind of ride the airwaves of adult morality and adult complexity, and, and, and what that results in is, is, is to, is to toothwart a kind of ecstatic high point of human, of human nature, mm-hmm. of human creativity, and human energy. So that's what he's after. Um, but I also wanted him to be, that's how this was almost therapeutic for me, writing this book in terms of Brexit, was that something like Brexit is just a tiny bump yep. in the kind of scan chart of, of British history. And individual life is so small, but what he's, what he's, he's so he's a kind of eco messiah, um, and obviously you find out later what he really is, is just the spirit of place and, mm-hmm. and various other things. So that's, that was how I started, that was how he started, was I need a character who A, uses language in a way I want to use, because you know I, you know this having read the first one, I want to have a certain type of fun with language that I can't, I can't have my characters talking that way. Mm. And I also want to have a certain amount of fun with, with the elasticity of history and the shortness of human life. I want someone that can point out the, the ludicrousness of, of our current concerns,
1: given the grand size of the whole operation. Mm-hmm. But he does. He does exist in reality, in the in, in the village, so to speak. He exists in the folklore of the village, in the in the memory of the village. That there, there is. He's yeah, real if yeah. you want to believe in him, mate. Right? <laughs> 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 yeah, no, he exists. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he's
2: made real by his symbolic and.
1: Yeah, but but realistic. but you know, it's not. He's not. Yeah, people who have grown up in that village know the name. They know yeah, the. They, yeah. There there are rhymes. There are legends. Yeah. There are so. on. we haven't talked about in in between all this so we have the the kind of deep earth spirit and we have the the metropolitan interlopers and somewhere in the middle you have pete or mad pete tell us about pete yes in as much as anyone in a novel represents a, a set of themes pete
2: is the creative spirit worn down and abused by the commercial world he has been successful it almost killed him He is living in a kind of reclusive manner in this village still making work still doing shows much to everyone's bafflement because he kind of dresses like a tramp and wanders around the village doing strange things he's actually a big deal Mm -hmm. you know books have been written about him you discover I wanted him to be an emblem of the fact that if someone if someone's making work for the right reasons they aren't doing it for money or recognition they're doing it because they love to make stuff so what we witness with Pete is through the pedagogical process, through the, through the relationship with Lanny, where he's teaching Lanny to paint, he falls back in love with the thing he loved, first of all, which is mark-making and looking at things in the world, be it a dish of fruit or a tree or a child, and rediscovering in himself this fantastic interest in form and, mm. and the, way things, the way objects in the world relate to, the, to each other. Um, and it's like it's like a sort of renaissance for him it's it's a kind of it's a kind of reopening of all his old of all his old pathways um, and passions and for Lanny it's just great gets to hang out with this nice old man he gets to splash paint around the place he talks and he he talks to Lanny as if Lanny's interesting and Lanny likes that because it's not a parental relationship and it's not a school relationship it's just a friendship pure and simple and I and I partly uh in in an environment of very antagonistic relationships between people and sort of shrieking i wanted to i wanted to pour my heart into this relationship into this friendship i want to believe in a very suspicious world that you can have a lovely platonic relationship with an old man if you're a kid without that being a problem and i want us to be the reader to be complicit in that loving pete finding pete trustworthy the kind of bloke you like I wanted to, want to very quickly get him established as someone warm and witty and sort of yearnable for, if you know what I mean, that kind mm-hmm. of tactile, you know, if you think of like, what's the guy that played Morse? John Thor. John Thor as, as Station Master Tom in, 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 in um, mm-hmm. oh, what's it called? You know, there's sort of, you can see him, can't you? This is a Cornish fisherman's jacket, white beard, yeah. um, you know, lovely dry hand. I, I want to sort of write a kind of eroticism of, old man friendship um, something like the old retired art teacher or your granddad you were really close to You know, for example my granddad taught me to make arrows mm-hmm. they were very special times I see it with my father-in-law and my son out there practicing keepy So I recognize that that is a very special moment because it can't exist very long for either of them yeah. one's going to die, one's going to become a teenager any minute so there's a very tiny pocket of time and in that time the kind of trappings of masculinity that Robert is struggling with aren't there. Lanny doesn't have to perform a certain type of boyishness for Pete, and Pete doesn't have to do anything other than just talk to the boy. So they're both finding they're they're at ease in each other's company in a way that isn't possible elsewhere. Plus, I just wanted to write about making, and I wanted this to be a book about touch, because I'm very into that at the moment. Well, I always have been, Mm -hmm. but particularly now, I'm finding like ever more urgent to make things and share things and give and make marks and you know, mm. so yeah, he's art really. He's mm. he's my love letter to, to
1: art as a way of life and as a mentality, as a philosophy of living. But you know, no matter how much you try to, you know, build a non-suspicious you know, view of the relationship suspicions you know as events where well, i do well, emerge of that yeah. in that yeah and i
2: do as much as i can in part one as i say to get you involved you know even just telling you about it then you're nodding and i'm thinking yes he's, he's on board he's nodding and this is what part one does it gets you on board so that when part two occurs you need to be asking to yourself why why did i think that was okay that, that, that i mean that's just not okay yeah uh, that he was free to just go into the guy's house and, and yeah. I, he was you know what were they doing like is it absolute it's neglect uh, it's highly improper and, um, and and I therefore want this all to come rushing in mm. in a kind of shocking questioning of your moral compass really and then because I don't because it's busy in part two I want your ability to think clearly about that, as as the reader of a novel does think clearly, you know about Karen or, you know, or you know the woman who owns the bookshop in the bookshop. Mm. You you're having you you have a view of this person. I don't want you to have any time to think about that in part yeah. two because I've got all these other voices banging at you. So I want you to be in a, in a, for want of a better word, a hostile environment, a readily hostile environment with other people's voices pressuring you to decide where you were at. Mm-hmm. And as that comes towards the end or non-ending of the book, because I think endings are quite fraudulent things, I want you to start to yearn. I hope, I hope, or at least I started to yearn for the ending I wanted. Yeah. Um, and I that was important to me, to put the reader through a ringer like that, so that they mm-hmm. started to yearn, even if it, even if it, to, to, for it to end, or for... As, as is suggested by some of the characters, for the resolution of a corpse, yes. which is offered by, for example, our, our, our obsession with the crime genre, that, that the resolution of a mutilated female body or of, of a, a severed head in a bin bag in a Thames, or of indeed the trappings, the sort of dramatic performances of, of community shock and horror and grief and burial rituals and funerals and all that. Those are are types of closure that we also milk in very strange ways for entertainment. And I wanted to put all that under the microscope and be like, what do you want here? You know, do you want, you know, I even said it to my editors in the (laughs) editing process. I was like, you're both sounding quite like you want Lanny to die. Um, talk to me about
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of things, as say, that that seem very normal and very endearing in the first half. Yeah, you know, endearing. You know, Lanny wanders, wanders the woods, mm-hmm. and, and you know, kind of picks up odd things and asks strange questions. Oh, even more so. I think yeah, you know, Jodie's writing a crime novel, which mm. you know, it seems seems yeah, pretty good bet. Mm. You know, for some, yeah, you know, that that's a very viable thing to do. You write, you know, mm-hmm. for a woman of her age and her capabilities and her background. And so, on is, you know, writing a gruesome crime novel in the age of Gone Girl, etc like mm. that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It suddenly becomes an incredibly bad thing yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah, just because our perceptions are shifted so rapidly. I would say, I would say that's the thing. Mm. Reading it's so rapid the shift from part one to part two. And the certain pace, particularly, as yeah. you say, yeah. is a terrif- almost terrifying. Yeah.
2: I mean, this is what I was slightly up to in the first book as well. Like, the novel is it, a very powerful thing it, because you, are going, you have it in your hand, so it's actually physically in your space, and you are going to have to sit and read it for a good number of hours. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I have enormous power over you at that point. I don't want to abuse that power, but I, you, you can suddenly put someone on, 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 very, on very thin ice and you should i think uh, mm-hmm. and you know interesting books and then even the way that poetry can do it you know if you if you are paying enough attention to poetry then you do then then there are chasms that yep. open up in between lines or between stanzas or 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 even great sudden you know i like i like those poems that where that land in their final line in a way that really sweeps the rug out from under your feet and generally i find that there are the old tricks of suspense and now there obviously there's action and there's drama and this thing but novels don't tend to use the form mm-hmm. to do it to, to, they, don't, they don't do it in a novelized way yeah. like, uh, that the the accepts weaponizes and and makes something of of the kind of artificiality of the setup so that's what i was doing with the short things really mm-hmm. sort of asking the reader to come with me in a kind of extension of of the fakeness of the project you know these are made up people one yeah. one of these made up people has possibly been spirited away to a made up place, which may or may not be the death of a child like where do you want to go you know where yeah. do you want how do you want to think about this and, and i am I, I am anti this, this sort of I, I i hate the way we're all talking to each other at the moment i think really depressing and unpleasant so i wanted to just have absolutely no hierarchy I wanted to scramble all or I wanted everybody involved I, yeah. want, I, want, I want the most I want the local gossip I want the get the pub bore I want the sort of I want the kind of failed intellectual priest I want them all and mm-hmm. I invited them all in with an open heart to say what they think was going on um, but I also want the people we know and love in there as well mm-hmm. as parents and stuff so and I knew I couldn't push I knew that couldn't be very long part two because if you carry that on then then what you're doing is just you're just cheating, you're just, you're, just, you're just trying to get the emotional intensity without any of the hard work. So I knew yeah. it had to be a kind of fulcrum point. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit like, uh, again, a bit like The Crow, like as part of the overall structure, you can't over-egg that pudding. Anyway, it was an interesting thing
1: to do. Mm-hmm. You say you've found something... For <laughs> me <laughs> at least. <funny>. <laughs> 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 <I> mean, horrible <laughs> for the reader. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's survivable. You say you say you found something fraudulent about endings. What do you mean by that? Um,
2: If a novel ever feels to me fake, it's usually in the ending. It's usually when the whole thing comes apart for me and I think, ah, you've rushed that or you've you've massaged that beyond what the book... You know, as if the book had a sculptural form and a sculptural integrity, and mm-hmm. by finishing in that way, you've you've betrayed the relationship that the book, book had to the, the raw material you carved it from, if you see what I mean, if that's yeah. too ridiculous a, a way of getting at it. I can only think of a few novels that have ended, for me, with beautifully. Such as? Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the classic ones, you know, like The Count of Monte Cristo... Mm-hmm. Has a glorious ending, you know, hope and wait and they stand and You know, the whole thing is 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 sort of major chord. And I'm into this idea of the major chord, and I particularly was last time. But this this question of earning for yourself the ability to land on a major chord, and that comes from being sentimental, but also from sort of from give, wanting to give myself the kind of the kind of tingles of an onward or back to the beginning. Um, again, this sort of accept- acceptance that the novel has to finish somehow, so yeah. I've handed over the control of that to the characters, in this case to Peggy, who's the kind of village elder who has a kind of uh, deus ex machina power granted to her by her wisdom and by the fact that she predates everybody and will will outlive everybody as, as, a, as a ghost or a presence and I want I want that, it's a bit like saying it's a bit like me now saying to my long dead granny, like me what to do in my life now i'll ask her what to do about brexit mm-hmm. or whatever because she didn't know any of this language but her she would have this, this sort of spiritual wherewithal to steer us so i wanted to sort of take it out of the thing and hand it over to a kind of god of novels if you see what i mean yeah um i was going to have five endings and then you're going to choose your own ending and i was into that as a as a kind of affectation almost and i, and I told faber that's what i was going to do when i was writing the book and I had the different endings in mind, and they were consistent with the characters. And then I thought, actually, it's a it's a cop out because this is my world, and I do need to decide where I want to have happened. Perhaps having kids of my own, perhaps the political climate, perhaps the environmental context I'm writing in the moment. Or whatever it is, I just sort of was like, oh, okay, I'm going for it. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to finish this in this way that's occurred mm-hmm. to me as as a sort of we don't want to do spoilers, do we? But uh, partly. Because everything is so tight and snarky and and sort of there's this sort of anti pretentiousness vibe from the cultural establishment and and I and I and I love kids books and I've been working in a theatre on the last I basically had this idea that I must I must like lay myself open like naked in the woods <laughs> 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 to the idea of a of, of a kind of jump off
1: yeah
2: of a kind of I was just listening to a song this morning do you know do you know the Bonnie Prince Billy song i'll send it to you but basically it's just it just it has a kind of unbelievable nakedness it's just a man singing alone mm-hmm. basically and i i felt that 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 sort of startling almost worrying like oh christ i think he's actually gonna fly he's gonna fly her across the stage now or whatever it is yeah. that you have in children's books that don't, you don't blink when you you don't notice it in children's books because the Movement between realms or, or worlds is, is, is more fluid. I just wanted to do that in a realist novel that had realist concerns. Yeah. I was like, fuck it, why not? I want that in these in these books. I want that in, in the culture, if mm-hmm. anything, particularly in England now. Like, what would an English magic realism be, for example? Yeah. If it, you know, but also to coexist with, you know, with the sort of silk cut, smoking, Daily Mail, old crone. Like, how can I have both? And ha- and I want to give that to her because I love her. Yeah. And she might well be my mum, my grandmother. And I want her to say, It's it awfully really strange the way they fly at the end? Like, no, it's not. We've always been flyers in this fucking country. You know, read the English folk, you know, yeah. I-, I guess it's my kind of like throwing folklore at at the tabloid newspapers in the hope that they might defeat them or melt them or change them or soften them or something. Mm-hmm. That's, that's certainly how it felt when I got there in the end. Yeah. But it, it, <laughs> it I'm doing like, this it, like staging some I'm going kind to of fucking battle with the ending. <laughs> it felt very natural. Yes. It felt yeah. like the right thing to do and that awful cliche of writers saying that their characters speak to them, but it is true. Mm. Not, not literally, but I'm lying in bed at 3am thinking I think I'm going to do that or that or that. And I very, very clearly see. What happens. Where they're going to end up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that—that and, and that was because I'd spent a year so in this place, and, and I say in this place, and I mean the dimensions of the place are utterly known to me. Yeah. Like someone asked me if I, if I knew, if I roughly knew the layout. I think we knew exactly the layout. <laughs> so I have been walking up and down this street. I've been drinking in this pub. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at it from outside as Dead Papa Toothwort does. I've been giving tours of it. So actually, when it came to the sort of theatrical um, practicalities of how to end it, I just needed to get back in and, and do my walk. If yes. You uh, and that was great and, and, and exhausting and quite a weird way to make a living. Because <laughs> 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 i <was>, had <laughs> done it for years for other people's books. or Because uh, as an editor, you know, you're, you're saying to novelist A, You know, I can't help you with this, you've got to finish it on your own. But if I were you, I would go right back into that village and I would walk up and down and I would think how much it's hurting you and what you want and do you want you know, have you read those are the sorts of conversations Mm -hmm. so to have that conversation with myself was was odd Mm -hmm. and, and good. And then obviously I was very well edited and there was a question from my American editor and my UK editor around about the same time about about how much trust you put in a reader to not lose patience. Mm-hmm. Asking the same question, really. What, do, what what have you asked them? What have you tricked them into thinking they want with this? And what are they used to wanting? And how much do you want to annoy them? Yeah. Or how much do you want to give them? You know, Because you don't want to just feed them the ending they think they want.
1: So, yeah, it was a really interesting thing. But, a that, long but, boring but, answer to almost is. There, there is that confrontation at the end where people are The, the characters are confronted with what ending do you want yeah. here? What, yeah. What's the real ending you want here? Yeah. Um, just one last... Question, I'm going to ask you to read a quick extract you, if you'd like to then. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned the the, so the book launches in the next few years. You'll be doing a South Bank performance, you'll be touring, and Brief is the thing with Feathers opened in Ireland last year, opening in, in London this year. And I think you said in the United States later this year as well? Yeah, it goes to Brooklyn. I guess the question uh, is the. the the narrative you're building i mean do you, you you say you consciously didn't sit down to write like a novel and such with the first book and, and this was much more like write a, a novel but do you still feel that you know what you're what you're creating is something that lives as you're writing do you think can kind of, would this does this go to other places? Does this go to performance? Does this go to radio? Does, is this... You know, I can imagine this, for example, this, you know, like it's under Milk quidish kind of yeah. description, radio players and like that. Is, is that ever a conscious thought or is it getting I, the words on the page? It would,
2: I assumed it would be and I was worried about it. And uh-huh. A bit like I was worried about, you know, my Amazon one-star reviews or even more dangerous, my Amazon five-star <laughs> voices in your head. Yeah, And I was just really delighted that they just weren't there, mm-hmm. not when I was writing. I was really into it and because and I wrote on Fridays, I worked in my job four days a week and then I would write on Fridays. So I am thinking about the book all week and then when Friday comes, I just turn on my computer, plug my headphones in, I'm just in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: With really no, no thinking of even whether I'd eaten, I was absolutely in the book. And then with part two and making it almost, you know, indebted to the conventions of a play script or radio play, I was just not so much because, oh, this might work as a radio play, more thinking I want to take some of what radio plays have mm-hmm. for the benefit of mine. I want to steal mm-hmm. <laughs> some of what radio plays do and put it in here because I think the novel could benefit from some of that energy, some audio movement. But that's sort of the novelist I'm going to be, I think, anyway. Like, they're not going to be conventional novels. Like, next time I'm, I'm going to write something quite different, I hope, and it will probably be even less novelly. In, mm-hmm. in terms of beginning, middle, and end, and chapters and plot, but it'll probably be my most conventional novel so far in terms of prose. It'll be yeah. it'll be prose, less of this kind of short chapters and prose stuff, but it'll be it'll be quite profoundly not like a novel in as much as so I want it to be a very intimate thing about two people. So I, I guess the work is to just keep on thinking about what you want the novel to do for you and whether the whether the form is is sort of controlling you or you're controlling it and all the all the good questions one should ask of any work you're doing and if the thing is about the adaptations that i don't want to think when i'm writing something about whether it's going to be adapted but what i do now realize is that i love collaborating with people so this book is quite different to how it would have been because of the experience of making a play with people mm-hmm. and being in a room with ender walsh and killian like, that was a great couple of months of my life it taught me a lot about the immediacy of encounter about improvisation about trust about working in a team yeah. When you've been in, on your own in a room writing a novel, to see you know a sound guy coming and go, yep, I can do that, and a lighting guy going, you could be drenched in light suddenly then, and you know, like, wow, they're making stuff, and they make it so they're, they're top of their game, professional, mm-hmm. so they just make incredible stuff quite fast, and then before you know, you've got a play and you've got five hundred people in total silence weeping, <laughs> what's happening? And, I, and so I went back to the novel and finished it with this sudden sense of, I mean, that's partly where the ending came about, but also yeah. the sense of like, oh, I've not been as a novelist oh I've not been using my lighting department I've not been you know I've not been building ambitious enough sets I've, you know I've not been attuned enough to the power I can have with one character on stage alone you know and that for me that's just the joy of being into all this anyway like reading freely between kids books and poetry and plays and comic books and graphic novels it's quite inspired by graphic novels in as much as the movement between panels is, mm-hmm. is based on that it's a celebratory book of of sort of literary magpie behaviour, and I would hope to to never lose that. But I think if I'm ever sitting writing a novel thinking, ooh, (laughs) this could be the breakout role for Martin Freeman, then I I, (laughs) I need to get out of that room. That would be wrong. Also, novelists leave novel writing all the time and go and write screenplays. Some of the best novelists in the world today are, are not writing novels, they're doing screenplays, and that's totally cool. But the most interesting ones know that they're symbiotically linked, but they are different things. And if you you need to, the novel does what the novel does very well, very interestingly. So, for example, would I write the screenplay of Lanny? I, I'm thinking actually probably not, mm-hmm. because a I'd want to write something new, and b that's someone else's job. I'll ask you to read. This is yeah. Pete. He took very well to watercolour painting, very well indeed. I can't much be asked with watercolour, but Lanny had a good feeling for it. Could guess at absorption and pigments' unpredictability in ways that impressed me. Knew without instruction how to use the brush for taking away as well as putting on. You can lick that, I said, if you're in a hurry. Suck it clean if you need to quickly undo, it doesn't taste bad. But that, that lead white, that's poison. He looked at the little tube. How much white would you need to eat to die? Not a question I can answer, Lanny, a shit-ton. There'd be quicker ways to kill a person. Just don't lick the brush when you've got white on it and we'll all avoid prison. Good lad. We wandered out to paint the lightning tree on the other side of Dog Rose common. He traipsed along, his backpack jangling with water-pot binoculars, snack bar and carton of Ribena. We chatted about football cards and little plastic fighters he swapped with his mate in the general Lanny-esque stream of conversation flowed forth, philosophical mutterings and bits of tune all mixed up with standard child babble, and suddenly I smelt spliff, sticky, rich and green over the airwaves, lovely smell. In the bus shelter, as we passed, there was the Henderson boy with Oscar what's his name from Yew Tree Cottage, and they were passing back and forth a joint as big as a church candle. A floppy, knuckled, badly built thing, and my word, it smelled nice. We nodded as we passed, and I raised a hand in greeting. Weirdo, coffered one of them, spluttering into giggles. We walked on. I was a little stuck for what to say, and then Lanny asked, "'Do you think they were talking about me or you?' And I shrieked with laughter then, because for some reason I found that stupendously funny. And Lanny was saying, what? What's so funny? We trampled down the dog walk path towards Hatchet Wood and it was ever so beautiful. The thick wall of green between the common and the wood bursting with life. Clematis clambering through and over it. A properly paintable riot, the yarrow glowing a bit, the blackthorn and maple all hugged up together, foxgloves leaning out like thin, beckoning arms, and I was still wiping tears of laughter from my eyes and considering how surprising it was. Me, an old man, tail end of a good career, but a mainly lonely life, finding such a good friend in this
1: little kid. Max Borgia, thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was presented by me, Portra Greedy, and edited by Sky Redman. Little Atoms is supported by 89 Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. And remember to check out littleatoms.com for a full archive. Thank you for listening.